Welcome to School of Movies. The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Normally at this stage I'd play you guys the trailer, but all Disney put out was the incredible music and the incredible visuals, so let's just go for the music. Hello and welcome once again. We are powering through the 90s Disney renaissance. Back to free the bell ringer is Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits. Hello. And returning for one more show, for now, it's Name Chaibiti of the Digital Rift community. Very happy to be here. Now this time we have a film that it could be argued may be one of the best and yet least appreciated for its qualities of this period. Definitely not without its flaws, but certainly not deserving of being locked up in a tower like some ghastly mistake. However, if you listen carefully, you may pick out why it was less popular than Disney intended. So let's start as we mean to go on, shall we? With a young woman getting harassed, chased and killed by a man, both a religious zealot and a deeply prejudicial kind of government official, and her killer then musing on tossing her deformed baby into a deep well. So this one's quite dark. You could say that, yes. Looking back on it, and if you put it in the context of in the 90s, they couldn't say die or kill on the Spider-Man animated series because that would upset the kids too much on Saturday mornings. And then my Uncle Ben was, and he trailed off. Yeah, they, they literally couldn't address that kind of dark theme. And most of the cartoons and uh, animated shows of the time were very, very... Um, I don't like using the term PC. I think that is a way too simplified uh, view on what was actually happening at the time. Also, PC, I don't think, is really the right term for that. Neutered. 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 Childproof. Childproof. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it was very unusual for a Disney film to be made dealing with such upsetting issues and confronting these themes full on and occasionally distracting you with some clownery. But to, to do so in a way that actually wove black humour into what it was suggesting and what it was presenting. It was risky as hell, actually, if you look at it, especially since it came out around about the same time as the very popular Toy Story. It did not hit Disney's expectations, and I think they were trying for a best film Oscar. If you look at the actual production values of it, if you look at the, the, the cast, even Tom Hulse and Kevin Klein, both Academy Award winners, uh, you've got Bette Midler there doing the, uh, the song. Um, the, it's set in France again. It's almost like they said, okay, right, you didn't give us best picture for Beauty and the Beast. Should we try that one again? Maybe, maybe this time? 
and they really are confronting some some serious stuff in a way that the academy tends to award films for confronting prejudice a power for control physical deformity also seems to be another thing that the academy love and especially since tom hulse uh, is perfectly able-bodied and was actually playing somebody deformed if this was live action you bet your ass he would have gotten a best actor nomination many of the same creative team as beating the beast as well trousdale and wise are back in the director's seat don Hahn is producing it really the only person missing is ashman yeah there's shots in this that seem to be almost a remake of beauty and the beast as well the opening um crawl down the streets of paris is set up in almost yeah it's in almost exactly the same way you have the baker on the left the baker comes out of the shop he's more realistic looking than in beauty and the beast but look at the the difference in animation this is suddenly so beautiful in comparison just a few years have elapsed and the difference between the very cartoony looking uh village and beauty and the beast and this painterly style so, yeah, so as you progress down the street, you've, you've got a lot of the shots are extremely similar, except for the fact that behind the village, you've now got cathedral and uh, cityscape rather than forest and hills. Um, and then much, much later in the film, which obviously we will come to eventually, um, you have the directing of the angry mob. And, um, and the comedy uh, riot that ensues. Exactly. And the, there are many other elements. And you of have this the maligned being... creature hiding up in a dark tower. Absolutely. You've got. And the... you have the beautiful woman who comes to, to, to draw him out without fear. To rescue him. Yeah. She's uh, very similar to Belle in character. She's an active person. She's fairly dynamic, but extremely compassionate. Um, you have an she... angry man who's very ugly inside, yet retains a position of extreme power amongst the townspeople. Mm-hmm. Called, you know, basically calling for a witch hunt yeah and inanimate objects providing the inverted commas monster something to talk to that isn't just his own head yeah and it is french and it's did we french. mention that oh my <laughs> god is it french and they get in some french puns like monsieur it was not worth it as i said on twitter being really really good at puns makes you exactly as funny as being really really bad at puns <laughs> <laughs> and i say that as someone who is at least one of those things that this opening number is incredible though so yes. these these yes. six minutes stand with like this is one of the best sequences of the entire disney renaissance altogether mm. is gorgeous to look at it is loaded with very elegantly delivered expository information and tone setting information as well yeah. and that music blows me away every time yeah. the bells of from... notre dame as a theme is just yeah. this epic feeling piece of music yes. and that final crescendo with the chorus singing just is jaw-dropping. You've got the, on the street when uh, Klopper's doing his, uh, his Punch and Judy show, effectively, and it's playing these sort of medieval flutes. And by the end, it rises up and it bells, 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 bells. And then you see the whole bell tower and it's going, this thing is epic! If ever they wanted an Oscar, it's right now. The entire introduction of the movie, the, the first few minutes, throw you into the plot. The choir makes the movie feel epic right off the bat, and the clouds with the beginning ap- uh, animation yeah. makes it seem big. Um, the narrator, uh, what's his name? The uh, uh, Klopper. Klopper? Okay. Klopper. Okay, I'm not French. <laughs> Hush, and Klopper will tell you. He's... He, it feels like he's got the same role as the narrator from Aladdin, mm. but 
Yes. He's got a I lot more class. That. He's just, even well, though he he's like. French. Yeah. Well, I'm French. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, he just knows a lot more about, about the story and he's a, a real connection to it. And um, I, I don't know. This, this introduction uh, and, and going into the next scene just are so full of energy and so spirited. It's, it's saying this movie is something that you need to pay attention to. And you, you remember that, especially that, that final note at the end of the song, just, you know, to keep you engaged for when the movie actually, you know, slows down and takes its time to tell you what it is about. Oh man. Best picture of that year was the English patient. Does anyone remember the English patient really? Much as I'm right, I, I do. Quote from Anthony Mingella, but I he's... do, but I will tell you why. It's because of that little skit from um, Adam and Joe. Adam and Joe. Oh, look at that! I came star. back oh, months later, and she, and she was, was dead. dead. Do you know what else? Also, almost won Jerry Maguire. Now that is a film that should have won if it wasn't Hunchback. Uh, also, I've never heard of these movies. You've never heard of Jerry Maguire? Jerry Maguire. <laughs> yeah, how you doing? How am I doing? I'll tell you how I'm doing. I'm sweating, dude. Okay, folks, see Jerry Maguire. If you love our show, it has so much in it that you will love. But as for Hunchback, it wasn't even nominated for Best Picture. Best Original Song, You Must Love Me from Evita. Also, I finally found someone from the mirror has two faces. Also, for the first time, from One Fine Day. Also, That Thing You Do from That Thing You Do. Also, Because You Love Me from Up Close and Personal. Not even one song. Not even one nominated. And in terms of how well the songs work, I used to go out with an opera singer. This was his favorite Disney movie. It's like the Oscar people didn't realize that this movie came out. Best original musical or comedy score. Hunchback of Notre Dame, nominated. Guess what won? Emma. Anyone remember Emma? How much did the Academy not want to give Disney their props this decade? Also nominated The First Wife's Club, James and the Giant Peach, and The Preacher's Wife. The Giant Peach is all right. Yeah, Pe- Pe- Peach is good. They, I mean, basically, the, the Academy don't understand how some films are going to stand the test of time. The First Wife's Club is not one of them. I forgot that movie was made. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, during this period, had the Academy actually recognized Disney for achieving what it had done by actually awarding it across the board over these 10 years, 2D animation would still be huge. Because they didn't, Disney panicked and started trying to do Pixar and trying to do DreamWorks. And it's not that there's many other reasons, because basically people sort of of turned away and went, oh, we can see other things now. It's one of the contributory factors. Maybe it just made that no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't get that best picture. I don't know. It it, it galls me that... uh, I'm trying to put myself back at that time. Maybe they were coming out once a year at this point. Yeah. And this had been, like, what is this, five, six? This is, like, 
at least the fifth one in a row that is the big Broadway musical Disney formula. Yeah. Maybe if we don't count just, rescuers, you got yeah. If you ignore rescuers, maybe at this Aladdin. point we were just. Lying like just, we were just as a movie going audience getting a little bit all right i've seen it like i know i know what to expect in dream silly dreamer andres deha was uh talking about how he went to the uh, grocery store and uh he was talking about working on uh hunchback and the woman at the grocery store said "Ugh, it's not gonna be another broadway musical is it which is a bit deflating if you're working on something that yes is a broadway musical and yes is going to be huge and operatic and fantastic what did they want at this stage they wanted to appeal to everybody. I think that's where they fell down. Yeah. If they'd stuck with this idea that they do this formula really well, amazingly well, and the people who love it, love it. And what's happening now? They're going back to that. Guess what? The people who love it, love it. Yeah. But in doing so, they abandoned 2D animation, it would appear, all pretty much completely. And there is... This this is a discussion from another day, but there is something to be said for 2D animation, something fairly significant. Absolutely. I'm hoping that our entire series says that something over the course of many, many hours. Yeah, I have never met a 3D animator who did not desperately want 2D to come back. Yeah. And I've already talked about Howard Ashman getting his actresses singing and his... Ultimately, I think his absence was felt in the second half of the decade... It's only a little thing. Well, obviously, um, uh, Menken is wonderful in doing what he does. Menken didn't actually work on Lion King, did he? No, he didn't. Uh, he was, was working Zimmer. on Pocahontas at the time. So yeah. he, this would have been both with, is it Stephen Schwartz? Stephen Schwartz, yeah. Yeah. Wicked. Okay, Whoa. that explains a lot. It does, actually. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he did Godspell, Pocahontas, then Hunchback, Prince of Egypt. He went across with Katzenberg. Enchanted. Now, there's a film that I completely uh, undervalued when it came out. Dan, can we do Enchanted in this series? I think it's important enough that we do, and I also think we should do Mary Poppins. Yeah, let's do Ah, both. (laughs) Whatever, we're doing everything else. Yeah. I've noticed something with the uh, musical arrangements here. There are a lot longer songs in Hunchback than there are in the films around it. This one's really committing to the premise of big dramatic songs to fuel the narrative the world is cruel the world is wicked it's i alone whom you can trust in this whole city i am your only friend i who keep you teach you feed you dress you i who look upon you without fear how can I protect you, boy, unless you always stay in here, away in here? Remember what I've taught you, Quasimodo. You are deformed. I am deformed. And you are ugly. And I am ugly. And these are crimes for which the world shows little pity. You do not comprehend. You are my one defender. Out there they'll revile you as a monster. I am a monster. Out there they will hate and scorn and jeer. Only a monster. Why invite their calumny and consternation? Stay in here. Be faithful I'm to faithful. me. Grateful I'm grateful I'm Do as I say. Obey and I'll stay in here. 
safe behind these windows and these parapets of stone, gazing at the people down below me. All my life I watch them as I hide up here alone, hungry for the histories they show me. All my life I memorize their faces, knowing them as they will never know me. All my life I wonder how it feels to pass a day not above them. But part of them And of their living in the sun Give me one day of their All I ask is one To hope forever of their Where they all live on And where what I give what I dare just to live one day out there, out there among the millers and the weavers and their wives, through the roofs and gables I can see them. Every day they shout, scold, and go about their lives, heedless of the gift it is to be them. If I was in their skin a treasure Every instant out there Strolling by the sand Taste the morning out there Like ordinary men Who freely walk about there Just one day and then So Schwartz, absolutely not to be uh, uh, sniffed at. Just because Howard Ashburn was wonderful and his somewhat lighter touch was missed. Uh, What what qualities did Ashburn have which Stephen Schwartz has different qualities to? Can you you pinpoint that one? Uh, Ashburn was in much more of a producer role Mm. as things went on. And he had a very good idea, clearly, of how... A Broadway musical worked, and how to make it really grab people. And he had a lot, and he had a lot of informing ideas about character and story and other stuff. He he was, he had a good bit more creative control of the film on the whole. From everything I've seen, it looks like Schwartz was much more just teaming up with Minkin to make the songs, and much less involved in the actual creation of the gotcha. film itself. So he shaped the films a lot less than Ashman. I believe so. Yes. Okay. Well, that would uh, also account for it. There is definitely an imbalance to Hunchback, which was not in Beauty and the Beast and was not in Little Mermaid. I think that comes from somewhere else other than the music, though. Yeah, the music and the songs in this are... so. Uh, we've, I've been saying this over and over for the yeah. entire Renaissance. They're so good. Yeah. They are. 
There's there's a line in the Bells of Notre Dame, and Judge Claude Frollo is a wonderful example of this, of how to study somebody self-loathing yet narcissistic, psychotic, and incredibly selfish. And it's summed up in the uh, the single line, and he saw corruption everywhere except within. And that uh, can be attributed to many people who cry foul and only look outwards for that and never self-consider. Can we talk about Frollo now? If you want to talk about Frollo. I want to talk about Frollo because I think Frollo is... The best Disney villain? Yeah, hands down. He is in in companionship with... Hang on, I was just about to say, in companionship with Gothel and the qualities that make them the best Disney villains are very, very similar. They are both characters who um, take parental responsibility for very, very selfish reasons and then proceed to use in Gothel's case and abuse in Frollo's case the the child who is in their charge, again, for their own selfish ends. And yet the film, both films, give them just enough examination that you can see why you can see what it is that motivates them to behave that way so they aren't just the um overarching evil uh, just because there are real um human elements to their behavior that kind of give you a rational explanation even though you're not excusing it it's not acceptable that they behave that way but you can understand where that behavior springs from and that makes them so much more interesting and i use this in the correct context yes no you're right um, <laughs> that makes them so much more interesting than the vast majority of uh Disney villains and villains generally, frankly. Yeah. In fact, I'm saying they're the best Disney villains. They come pretty close to being some of the best cinematically represented villains I've ever seen. Yeah. The best yeah, kind of villain is somebody who is close to the hero. And maybe not uh, from the very beginning, but at least later in the story, just is on a very, very different mindset than the hero is. And then even though they're supposed to, to like each other and, and even love each other, they just are forced to come into opposition with each other. But they're not just simple antagonists either, because you can no. have um, opposition to the hero who nevertheless is not really a villain. And I've seen that done really well elsewhere. But the this Frollo in particular, he is very definitely a villain, but it's because of the choices that he makes. Mm. And there are numerous occasions throughout the story where he is put in a position where he could choose to do the right thing. He could choose to do the good thing. He could choose to do the kind thing. And he doesn't. And that's because he considers the wrong thing to be the right thing. He never exactly. realizes that his morality is flipped around. Yeah. Part of my awe of him as a character, as a villain, is just in not being able to believe that he actually exists in a Disney animated film. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's, because it's like you said, it's not just that he is a corrupt religious official attempting to violently purge a race of people under the guise of a righteous crusade. That's evil. But <laughs> well, when you put it like that... That's evil, but it's still that monstrous, inhuman evil that Sharon was talking about. Like, But when they take that and add to the mix his moments of vulnerability and self-doubt over mm. this lust for Esmeralda that stands in direct contradiction to his self-image of piety, and that suddenly makes him a very human, much scarier kind of evil. Like, 
okay, that Hellfire song number mm. is also hard to believe it's in a Disney film, and it's incredible. Yes. And it takes this evil character, and it shows just a glimpse at the torment that drives him and how it turns him into an even more destructive mm. evil force because he sees in himself the depravity that he condemns in others, and it drives him mad and rather than confronting that hypocrisy in himself he blames the corrupting influence of those around him and you and can extrapolate so much about his actions throughout his life from that simple song you totally can it, it, the mental gymnastics that take him from feeling something he doesn't want to feel when he looks at someone to blaming her for making him feel that way and for daring to make him question his self-image that's something that is awful but is also really human and understandable and understanding of actually makes him much scarier Hellfire is such an uncomfortable song for so many plot-related and, and even religious reasons. He, he prays to, to Mary, which is the mother of God, and she's you know, seen as the most holiest person after, after God himself, after Jesus. And he's praying to her about this so unpure of a thing. Yeah. And Please, God, to, will you kill this woman or make her yeah. mine? Yeah, if she can't be mine, and he's even saying that that's wrong, if she can't be mine, kill her, which is also wrong. He's praying to the purest of things. And asking for, for two, two things, both two of things which that are, are totally evil. wrong for him and for her. It's such an uncomfortable experience. Yeah. The character that I actually think he kind of puts me in mind of most or that he's most similar to um elsewhere is uh Rutger Hauer in Sin City he ate people <laughs> yes but Man, make I mean, sure you don't watch that for a few years kids I mean I just mean in the context of um seeking purity but doing it in the most terrible way horrible yeah. impure murderous way See, that, this is why I said that, that it, person could possibly they do. needed to be this kind of scene for Ronan the Accuser in Guardians of the Galaxy Sun to just make you go, whoa, this guy is genuinely dangerous to the world. And messed up. Yeah. And messed like a fascinating and messed up and probably needs to be taken away before he can really do too much damage. And that could be said of so many public figures right now. Uh, also, voiced by Tony Jay, now no longer with us, blessed with one of the best voices ever. Why is it that deep voices are some of the best voices ever? How come no one ever goes, hey, Rosie Perez, you're fantastic. Come and be in our movie, The Road to El Dorado. Oh, they do. For uh, the same but- reason that bass is such a coveted thing in cars it's not just me right girls like bass too surely no i think that lower bassy register is somehow soothing yeah even if it's coming from someone like tony J. he had a little um uh uh, role in beauty and the beast and and clearly you know made a good impression there because they were like right this guy could be our villain from now on he's got a presence that fills the room even if the room is a cathedral Dancing there 
why her smoldering eyes still scorch my soul. I feel her, I see her, the sun caught in her raven hair is blazing in me out of all control. Like fire, hell fire, this fire in my skin, this burning desire is turning me to sin. It's not my fault. I'm not to blame. It is the gypsy girl, the witch who set this flame. It's not my fault. If in God's plan, he made the devil so much stronger than a man. Protect me, Maria. Don't let this siren cast her spell. Don't let her fire sear my flesh and bone. Destroy Esmeralda and let her taste the fires of hell. Or else let her be mine and mine alone. Minister Fulham, the gypsy has escaped. What? She's nowhere in the cathedral. She's gone. But how? Never mind. Get out, you idiot. I'll find her. I'll find her if I have to burn down all of Paris. Hellfire. Dark fire. Now, Gypsy, it's your turn. Choose me or your pyre. Be mine or you will burn. God have mercy on her. God have mercy on me. But she will be the design of Quasimodo, they went out of their way to make him both uh, frightful and incredibly um, likable and uh, I suppose endearing endearing yeah he's got these you know if you just look at his um, silhouette he's actually scary especially if you're a child but if you gaze into his eyes he's just got these great big green soulful eyes and they're so gentle and he's so pitiable and you just want good things to happen to him he's an excellently designed protagonist and Tom Bowles' would... voice adds a lot too, because it's incredibly gentle yes. yeah. sounding voice coming from this character. Yeah. I don't think he's scary, even in silhouette. I think they've the way they've designed him. Um, the most significant thing about him is that he's asymmetrical, yeah. and symmetry is one of the things that we uh, we subconsciously use to assess whether or not somebody is healthy. Um, because if you've experienced things like malnutrition, or if you've had um, a number of childhood illnesses, it affects the way your body develops. So if anything is out of balance. Um, it it makes it look as though you are unhealthy for one reason or another. Um, and it, you kind of, 
instinctively want to avoid things that are potentially going to bring you illness and disease. Um, but I think what they've done is is focused on the fact that um, his the way his face is shaped makes his eyes huge and really makes them stand out, which is one thing that the uh, the Disney characters of the ages that you're supposed that that children are supposed to really engage with is the big eyes because it makes them look childlike um and you impulsively want to protect anything that looks childlike um so i think they've actually found an amazingly good balance here of making somebody look physically wrong in in terms of you know not the the shape that a human being is supposed to be and yet all your instincts, all your impulses are to feel sympathy for him, to want mm. to help him. Um, you know, the fact that he he can move um, incredibly nimbly, but at the same time, you get the impression that it's really uncomfortable for him because his shoulders are kind of set in such a way that they almost seem to be pulled apart. And um, his uh, his spine is obviously not formed right to be able to simply walk down a street but all the climbing that he can do all of the um the acrobatics that he can do um so he's he's not presented as somebody who is um incapable because of all of his his deformities and i i think there's a it's a very fine line between getting all these elements right and they did that i think they hit it square on the nose yeah i was born halfway through the 90s um and growing up my parents and other people always tried to get me to watch a lot of the Disney and Pixar movies. And Good for, for your whatever, parents. Yeah, I know. No, my parents are awesome. Yeah. But I, I was scared of a lot of Disney movies and Pixar movies. Can you can you imagine being afraid of A Bug's Life and Aladdin? It's it's so it's so strange for me now that I was once scared of those awesome movies. But well, for whatever Lyra was reason, scared of Beauty and the Beast because the Beast yells. Yeah, I can imagine I mean, being scared of Jafar. And the, yeah, the no. Cave of Wonders. Mm-hmm. That, see, that's the thing. The, uh, the Cave of Wonders opens up and you're like, I don't want to watch this anymore. Yeah. But um, for whatever reason, with Hunchback, I've always loved that movie. Yeah. Even though it's got the most messed up villain. He's, and the most he's traumatic just, beginning as well. He just yeah. like, he straight up murders her. But for whatever reason, I was just always attached to Quasimodo. Yeah. And and how endearing he is. Like Aladdin, he's kind of just your stereotypical hero when compared to Quasimodo. Yeah. So that didn't keep me engaged enough to Good stick kid. it out. And, Good heart. Yeah. Handsome. Looks like Tom Cruise. Fun, funny, athletic. Nothing wrong with him at all, except for the fact that he doesn't have much money or roots. So I didn't want to see it through the end to see him beat the bad guy because I thought, oh, man, he's, he's done. But with Quasi, I, I wanted – to yeah. see him you succeed him. Be- because I liked him so much. Even as a small little kid, I wanted to see him, which made watching uh, Frollo a-, a little bit better. Yeah. So many times out there, I've watched a happy pair of lovers walking in the night. They had a kind of glow around it almost looked like heaven's light. I knew I'd never know that warm and loving glow, though I might wish with all my might. 
No face as hideous as my face Was ever meant for heaven's light But suddenly an angel has smiled at me And kissed my cheek without a trace of fright I dared to dream that she might even care for me And as I ring these bells tonight My cold dark tower seems so bright I swear it must be So I mean, the the very intro, uh, the very beginning, you get to to, to meet him for a, f- a short while while he uh, expresses how much he wants to go out and uh, enjoy the town, and so you get a little bit of what he wants. Then Frollo comes in and presents us with why he can't have that, and they go way further than that by basically showing the incredible power Frollo has over him when they're singing their duet in that you are deformed, I am deformed, and you are ugly, and I am ugly. That's psychological oppression, which very few films usually tackle, and they just confront it head on and go, no, 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 Frodo, Frodo has him in his thrall at this stage. But then after you're, you've finished feeling terribly sorry for him, you realize that he hasn't broken his spirit because Quasi goes back out onto the roof and within the frame of the same song breaks into out there and shows you how much he really wants to be out there and how much he has such a romantic loving soul and all he really wants to do is be among people there's it's such a simple thing to ask for no one could possibly watch it and go nah you're probably best off staying up there so automatically you you know you bring him down as low as you he can possibly go and then you bring him up as high as he can go and you're on board it's the best song in the movie it's wonderful did it, has anyone seen Amadeus? By the way, yeah. No, I, I'm about to watch it though. Go my my mom it. said, my mom saw me watching Hunchback for mm. the for for this podcast. She's like, "Have you ever seen Amadeus?" And I'm like, uh, "No." She's like, "All right, Netflix time next yeah. week." So, well, you are in yeah. for a treat. You got a good mom again. Um, yeah. No. Again, my parents are amazing. They he, they're so nerdy. <laughs> he doesn't get to sing, and uh, not in the same way. And uh, he's he's actually an annoying, uh, immature little git as uh, Mozart himself. But he convinces as a genius. And uh, by the end, again, you're rooting for him desperately. And you so want things to go right for him. Uh, well, no spoilers. But uh, okay, yeah. Um, he, I, I suppose, historically speaking, it kind of went right for him in that he is now. Immortal. Mozart will never die. Somebody posited a while back, and I can't pin down who it was, that the gargoyles, that's Victor Hugo and Laverne, are in fact figments of Quasi's imagination. I don't know if I said that, but that's definitely a thought of mine. Discuss. Um, well, nobody sees him talking to the gargoyles ever. 
Um, the gargoyles interact with the environment every once in a while, but like it could be argued because that they they jump cut. It could be argued that Quasi himself is doing that. Yeah, or that ah. Quasi's imagining the gargoyles doing that. And even when they do interact with one other character, it's Jolly the goat, and it's in a way that Quasi never has to verify that Jolly saw one of them because it's a goat. So yeah, it yeah, absolutely I, I think, could be imagined. I think they are more or less going for that. I, I, the amount of times that we will be in a scene with them alive and interacting with Quasimodo and the instant someone walks in the room, we That's see stone. them as stone and it not only, like especially after their big sort of friend like me musical number ending with this kind of like big set piece of little props all around and then as soon as someone enters the room and it snaps back to being just Quasimodo and a bunch of statues, you see kind of that same set piece, but just kind of crummy and made of stuff that he had around the yeah. room with him. Like he was, just, again, like it was just a thing of his imagination. And I think that as an idea, that's inspired. That's brilliant. Give him some characters to talk to specifically when he's alone. What would you do if you're up in your, like up in this tower by yourself your entire life with nothing but these gargoyles to keep you company? You'd probably start kind of making friends with them. <laughs> Go crazy. Dude, but they fuel him. Yeah, they, they they're the reason why he's able to have that spirit, have have his song because yeah. keep him they, buoyant. They, yeah, if I they, wish are... they had committed to that, though, is the thing. They often have those characters. The gargoyles ha- have reaction shots when Quasimodo is nowhere nearby, and like, there will be lots of times when he's down in the town square at the at the feast of fools, and they're looking and down on him. Something yeah. will happen, and they're looking down and they're reacting, and. They, they basically seem to have kind of their own independence as characters that sort of suggest they're sort of alive, but not really. Unless the thoughts in the back of Quasi's head, they do yeah, represent like, oh, they, the ego, the superego, and the id, especially yeah, Jason like, Alexander is the id. Uh, Quasi's thinking, oh man, they're probably saying this about me right now. Yeah. What am I What am I doing? Yeah, I mean, they, they, they could represent his self-doubt wrestling with his uh, sense of determination to actually push through with this. Which, if that's the case, then that makes a stronger argument for how he is able to make consistently good and right, and I mean those words in the Disney context, um, good and right decisions, because it would be, how easy would it be for somebody who's grown up in his position to kick down? Yeah. How easy would it be for him to side with Frollo over the um, the treatment of the gypsies? I mean, yes, all right, he does say, oh, but Frollo says that gypsies are evil. But he never actually does anything that would externalize that belief. He doesn't go out into the town kicking gypsies. He doesn't <laughs> throw stones at them from up on the tower. Um, you Which know, after all 20 years of poison from Frollo it's completely understandable that he would have been twisted in this regard. Mm. It shows a great strength of character and spirit to be able to make that discerning choice that, that from what he sees, because remember he's watching for himself. He doesn't see evidence of the, the ugliness of the world that Frollo keeps talking about. Mm. He's decided that for himself. But in the same way that they got uh, Quasimodo in my mind, perfectly right, visually i think they also got his character perfectly well balanced as well he has the self-doubt he has the um the uh deeply held belief that um that he is a monster um but it never turns 
into him becoming internally a monster. Like I said, he never kicks downwards. Yeah. So uh, when Klopper asked at the end, who is the monster and who is the man? No, sorry, in fact, what makes a monster and what makes a man? We've just seen it, it simply comes down to caring about others more than you care about yourself. And if you take it to those two extremes, caring about yourself to the exclusion of all else makes one a monster. And caring about others to the point where you will actually put yourself on the line for other people makes you, in this case, a man. But it could also make you a woman. Quasi is told throughout his life that he's a monster, and this this drives home the the, the fact of the matter is, hey, I, I am, I must be. But Frollo is never once told that until you know all of the pl- plot of the movie happens. So it's it's what if Quasi is like, I'm a monster. How can I? not be how 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 else could i look at this situation and then frollo who's always been told he's been this great important man never never does never questions i think what we have here is harry potter and voldemort yeah if you look at one of one of the things about the the very beginning setup that hit me this time that i've not quite tweaked before oh my god and he kills quasi's mum as well but if you look at how she's carrying him, and, and part of the way I always imagined the Quasimodo story to go was that part of his um, his misshapenness was actually caused by him falling when Frollo snatched him away from his mother. But the way this is set up, that's not the case. He was born deformed, and yet she loves him. She is protective of him, the way she's carrying him and the way she tries to uh, to defend him and save him when they're threatened. She obviously loves him. He's had that very early part of his life being cared for, being loved, that would instill in him a sense of knowing on some level that he is worthy of love. And I will bet you dollars to pesos that Frollo has not had that. I just noticed something this time watching it um, that I hadn't noticed before, and I don't know if it actually means anything, but uh, Quasimodo, even aside from the deformities and stuff, does not look like the son of gypsies in terms of complexion. It's true. I don't know if that that means anything. You could argue that that's because he spent his entire life in a bell tower and hasn't seen much sun, but then no, I suppose because he goes out and climbs on the balcony, doesn't he? What if the I'm gypsies... not sure it's something that has to be explained, but it's still just a thought I'd had. What if the gypsies found him and then felt sorry for him, which would show the gypsies are caring about any kind of people and Frollo is not? Yeah, that's that that wor- It works just as well, if not more, that a gypsy woman would find a baby who someone else had already abandoned because of deformity and taken them in as her own. Mm, yeah, possibly so. Having mentioned the gargoyles already, yeah, if we, we should probably bring up that if this movie has one major problem, it's probably tone. This is easily the darkest, most adult Disney animation has ever gone with their films. Black Cauldron may have some kind of scary imagery and all that, but in terms of theme, it's a very basic kind of adventure fantasy story. This is like, religious hypocrisy and corruption and lust and damnation. And th- this is heavy stuff for a family film. Absolutely. And it seems like the gargoyles are an attempt, a desperate attempt to preserve the Disney formula, <laughs> to keep things still in line. They strike me very much as like the, 
the talking dogs and fighter planes from up. Like, please, God, give the kids something to watch. (laughs) (laughs) I understand entirely their instinct to do that because they're still having to make a family film. And the creators of this movie had to make they were having to fight very hard with the higher ups to make this movie the way they were trying to make it because there was understandably a lot of pushback. But I'm think maybe considering how very adult this film goes, perhaps they lay the wacky comedy on a bit thick, perhaps giving them a goofy friend like me style musical number mere minutes after some of the darkest, heaviest minutes of animation Disney has ever produced might be a little bit jarring. It is a bit flashy. Yeah. You feel a very noticeable shift in tone. The instant they come to life and the events and the instant they leave, it goes from very, Lots of fun, Aladdin, like jokes, Jason Alexander being silly and goofy and light comedy to the instant they vanish, going back to very dour very quickly. I think they're very funny, uh, with the exception of that song, just because of where it's placed makes it feel like, I don't want to watch this. (laughs) But if they they took that out and just had them uh, just – saying the same thing in the song, but, but talking to him and it would be a little more glum that I, I still think their characters would fit fine. I actually noticed this time watching the movie that they were very reminiscent of the three stooges with a lot of sound effects, like almost from those shorts. Yeah. Maybe that song could have worked in this movie. Like may, just maybe in a different place. Like it comes five minutes after hellfire and in between hellfire and that is Frollo going around the city, imprisoning, all the gypsies burning Paris to the ground, searching yeah. for Esmeralda I, and I, burning and trapping a, a family in their home and setting it on fire. Like actually really scary, big stuff. And then switching very quickly back to this song minutes later is it's, it's pretty, it's, it's not the tone you are. It's not where you're at emotionally when you're watching it. Paris, the city of lovers is glowing this evening. True, that's because it's on fire. But still, there's Lemoine. Think of the people that are dead. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a funny line, unless you actually think about it. Yeah, yeah. it's it, it, like I said, the black comedy, comedy of the line. Is it worth it? That's what it comes down yeah. to. I think you're it's right about the placement. Um, I didn't used to like that song. Um, I didn't really think it had a place in the film because it. Kind of like the bit of a fixer-upper in Frozen. Um, It just seems a little bit uncomfortable and doesn't quite sit with the message that the film is giving. But when I watched it today, it sort of clicked with me a bit more because it made me think, well... They're kind of giving Quasimodo this myth that if you're just a nice guy and if you're kind to her and you're just yourself, then she will fall in love with you. How could she possibly not? But then at the end of the film, she doesn't. But he's had that because he's had that message and it doesn't make him bitter. It doesn't make him think that the relationship that he does end up having with Esmeralda and with Phoebus isn't valuable in its own way because he's had that set up beforehand. So I think I now think that the song does work in terms of the the overall arc of the film but i think you're absolutely right the placement is a little off to be fair that's what best friends do all the time like yeah it'll totally work out you just gotta make sure that you do these things and then you do those things and then she doesn't like me wait a minute (laughs) especially interesting if they are extensions of his imagination of him trying to psych himself up Mm, it makes even more sense in that context frankly it kind of does yeah 
we were discussing this as uh, um, a perfect example of why nice guys have no excuses. But the, the internet nice guys who basically uh, um, make complain. I was just being a nice guy, and she rejected me. So, and then they they uh, unleash a torrent of abuse in response. You're not a nice guy until you've been rejected and managed to basically not insult that person. Totally agree. Being nice by in the midst of propositioning someone. That's just a given. If you walked up to her, smacked around the face with a haddock and said, want to go out? People would think you were completely off your rocker. Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's an extension of when Kyle says to Cartman, that's not being nice, that's just putting on a nice sweater. Side note, by the way, it feels like Eric Cartman became the model for the internet. They created this avatar of, here's who you shouldn't be because he's an asshole. And that's what a whole bunch of impressionable boys became because he made them laugh. Somewhere out there in the night, her heart is also alight. And I know the guy she just might be burning for. A guy like you. She's never known, kid. A guy like you, a girl does not meet every day. You've got a look. That's all your own, kid. Could there be two like you? No way. Those other guys that she could dangle all look the same from every boring point of view. You're a surprise from every angle. Muncha above, she's gotta love a guy like you. A guy like you gets extra credit because it's true you've got a certain something more. You see that face? You don't forget it. Want something new? That's you. For sure. We all have games. And some Adonis. But then we crave a meal for nourishing to chew. And since you're shaped like a croissant is, no question of she's gotta love a guy like you. Call me a hopeless romantic, but Marcy, I feel it. She wants you so any moment she'll walk through that door a guy so swell a guy like you with all you bring to her a fool can tell it's life she fell for you you ring the bell you're the bell ringer and she wants oolala and she wants yulala she will discover guy Okay, so Kevin Klein, the other guy, as uh, Phoebus. Thoughts? He's a fun, nice, just jolly guy. <laughs> Damning with faint praise, if ever I heard it. I, I don't know. He's got a... Um, He's got a good sense of humor. He's uh, very much the hero. And, I mean, if you wanted to make a stereotypical Disney movie, this would have been the guy. Oh, 
uh, sorry, this would have been the guy to uh, make the movie about. It's kind of like a, a fun version of John Smith. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, he's a lot like Flynn. He reminds me of Flynn a lot, actually. Yeah. Humor as well. Or indeed uh, uh, the character he played in The Road to El Dorado. I can't believe we're mentioning it twice. Maybe it was on my mind because of uh, Kevin Kline. Um, I haven't seen it in years, but he and uh, Kenneth Branagh play a pair of rogues. And uh, I mean, Kevin Kline's always been funny and uh, has uh, managed to um, bring across a dry delivery to this character. He's not much more than that. But I think ultimately when it comes down to it, and it's not so much that he's perfect, but it's almost like if he hadn't been funny, he'd be boring and too perfect and superfluous to the film and just an obstacle for Quasi. But because he's funny, he makes you laugh, so you can't just outright reject him. Yeah, that's his best character quality. Also, he's not an antagonist. He's, I didn't used to like him. I, I used to think there was no point in him being in the story, and it, it was basically just a way of saying, and the two beautiful people end up together at the end, which is, of course, how things are supposed to be. Um, but in actual fact, if you look at the way he acts, he's not just a good-looking, boring hero. Like you say, he he's funny, but also he makes... Good choices, but not always. To start with, he's following orders. He does what Frollo tells him to do. He enacts arrests. He goes after people because he's been told to. But there is a line in the sand, and when he reaches it, he doesn't cross it. And that kind of gives him more of a um, a heroic element to him, which is made the more interesting because he's not the central hero. However, he is Captain America Strong. I don't know if you noticed, folks, but he punches a guy on the helmet and dents it. That, that, that would break every goddamn bone. It's hard enough just to punch a guy on the skull and not break every bone in your delicate hand. But he manages to dent this guy's helmet. Then he punches a guy's teeth clean out. Then he like wrestles some guys with spears. And then when Quasimodo's falling, he catches him in midair during a, a moment of extreme momentum, which would have snapped him like a twiglet. So, yeah. And he's still injured. So, if anything, he's Captain France. <laughs> I I actually like him for I maybe it's just having come off of Pocahontas where the two leads are so very dry. stiff yes yeah, stiff and dry and even though Phoebus and Esmeralda's banter is feels very kind of weirdly contemporary I still love that they both at least have some personality and humor to them and I like that he also kind of comes in as this character who is who has been removed from this city and all of its various like clashes and problems for so long that he's not really invested in them them anymore. So he's kind of has a broader meta level view of what's of what he sees Frollo doing and what he sees people going through. You go away for a few decades and they change everything. Yeah. Yeah. I like the, uh, the throwaway line without even pause for uh, laughter and applause. I didn't know you had a kid. Hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, it feels it feels like the two of them should have rapiers in that scene. They're ex- exchanging so many little <laughs> puns. <laughs> it's possible with the gargoyles, they didn't need Jolly at all. The goat, Esmeralda, doesn't necessarily need someone to talk to. She's got a lot of humans to talk to. Well, then you miss out on the thrilling romance of a the goat gargoyle and a goat and a gargoyle who may so, not exist. So confusing and creepy. I've never, I've never understood that. <laughs> Like, what are they trying to accomplish? Weird, uncomfortable laughs from the audience. But at least the goat. What, what happened? A pipe. We push these children with bestiality. <laughs> it's not really a bestiality if the gargoyle might not exist. 
good point. The only thing that I've kind of reasoned through is that the gargoyle <laughs> himself has horns, so that's the connection. I, I Hang don't on know. a minute. That makes it worse. If the gargoyle's a figment of Quasimodo's imagination, that means Quasimodo has a thing for the goat. <sighs> also, people have mentioned this is completely off point, but I suppose it's to do with interspecies erotica. Um, we need to stop pulling this thread right now. <laughs> We may need to cut this bit out. No, no, no. This is actually relevant. And the kids will love it. Ninja Turtles. When people say, oh, God, Ninja Turtles and, and Donnie fancies April now, what exactly is he expecting from this one? Well, they're a species unto themselves. They're mutants by their very definition. Similar opposing chromosome female turtles are thin on the ground if we're not counting Venus de Milo in that show we never speak of. Ergo, they've got to go outside their own gene pool. So Donnie fancies April, and Leo has the hots for Karai in the new uh, Nickelodeon uh, show. Uh, so they kind of have to. I suppose this gargoyle trio, the other gargoyles seem pretty immobile. So, you know, if a goat comes along, <laughs> fair it's game. It's a rock! It what is indeed a rock. But, I mean, like, imagine being a turtle imbued with the... Well, how best to put this so that not to offend the, the mothers. Very, very being imbued with the energy of a teenage boy and having no female turtles around to have your attention of course you're going to go for april in comparison with the michael bay turtles constantly talking about getting boners inside their shells the nickelodeon turtles relationships are positively edwardian right so to me more as esmeralda now she was big news in the 90s round about up to this point i think this is around the time they did get ready kids striptease <laughs> Uh, and then she became... I think she basically retired to be a mum, didn't she? She didn't retire, exactly. Well, she stopped being in films. I think the last film I remember seeing her in was actually Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. Oh, okay. That's enough to make anyone retire after working with me. <laughs> it's interesting how all of these actors are, aren't really around anymore. Like, they haven't really had, you know, any big big star movies in... Quite a while. Frank Welker's doing the most work of all of them still. Yeah. Seriously. Oh, God, Frank, Kevin Klein. That in, will never change. He was in Wild Wild West shortly after this. So it's proof that Kevin Klein can be not funny. I like Esmeralda a lot as, as a character. Because Pocahontas has dignity, but Esmeralda has that and personality all at once. She's, I really love how expressive her facial animation is. Hmm. She's and, a social justice warrior. You! Gypsy girl, get down at once. Yes, Your Honor. Just as soon as I free this poor creature. I forbid it. How dare you defy me? You mistreat this poor boy the same way you mistreat my people. You speak of justice, yet you are cruel to those most in need of your help. Silence! Justice! I just had to ponder that for a minute. Yeah, well, no, um, she, she's, and this I, all she's... kind of plays in with what we were talking about, internet attitudes, uh, Sharon and I. That's why I deferred to you on this one, Sharon. Well, I, it's just you said specifically Demi Moore as Esmeralda. I don't really have a great deal to say about her delivery. It was it was very well done it and passionate. she convinced as the character. Um, but that's kind of doing your job. If her you're most emotional moment, however, was when she was singing and it wasn't Demi Moore. And it wasn't her. Yeah, exactly. That's why that but me. as far as the character is concerned, I think she's great. She's one of my favorite Disney females. She's active. She's passionate. She's enthusiastic. She has, um, yes, she's very 
again, that she's got this exotic beauty thing about her that uh, that they went for with Pocahontas. Um, but at the same time, there's a kind of a wickedness and a, a charm to her that is really, really appealing. And it, it's never given what Frollo is going through in terms of um, his attraction to her and seeing that as demonically inspired um it would have been it would have been difficult i think to um portray her in a way that didn't give at least some seed to that idea especially considering that she's a, a dancer effectively if you look at two adult themes for <laughs> exotic dancing mm-hmm. check yeah. she's an exotic dancer and She's uh, an unattached woman in that particular period in history. She is affiliated with an ethnic group that are not, even now, the issue of gypsies in France is a very politically charged one. Um, And they managed to make her completely sympathetic, not in a victim-type way. In part, I think that's because that's Quasimodo's role in this film and if you gave that to Esmeralda as well it would be too overwhelming and you wouldn't really be able to buy it in either of them Agreed It's interesting how um, she's being an exotic dancer uh, some stories would like delve into the psyche of what that does to a person but it's interesting how she doesn't do uh, like complain about it or or show that it's uh eating away at her personality it's just part of what she does because she is has such a hard life and she's comfortable with that because she's doing what she can to survive it's other people that she's always more uh concerned with and Mm. other people that she always wants to help that's a really good point actually she is incredibly matter of fact about it she is literally just well it puts bread on the table so that's what i do it's it's not a big deal for her. It's just her job. I can't actually think of many Disney songs from the 90s more relevant right now than this one. I don't know if you can hear me Or if you're even there I don't know if you would listen To a gypsy's prayer Yes, I know I'm just an outcast I shouldn't speak to you Still I see your face and wonder Were you once an outcast too? God help the outcasts Hungry from birth Show them the mercy they don't find on earth. God help my people, we look to you still. God help the outcasts where nobody I can't possess. 
This is relevant because there are people suffering everywhere that we care to look in the world today. And while Esmeralda's song may sound like thoughts and prayers as a response, she acts on those thoughts and actively helps people in need without asking for thanks or reward or anything from them of any kind, simply because she knows it's the right thing to do. For a film so heavy with religious iconography, there's a very clear line made between those who use their position in the church to abuse and exploit without repercussions and those who act on the teachings and ideals within those religions to make the world a safer, kinder place. Regards the ending, I think we're going to have to jump forwards and then jump back again because the ending of the original Victor Hugo book is so frigging dark that it uh, it had to be changed for this to turn it into a Disney movie. I find this a lot when if you read back the uh, the original endings for stories you already know and love, you I wonder to myself how did that ever work in the head of the person writing it? What did they want to instill in the reader? I'm sure someone could tell me, but this is the actual original ending. Um, Frollo betrays Esmeralda by handing her to the troops and watches while she is being hanged. While Frollo laughs during Esmeralda's hanging, Quasimodo pushes him from the heights of Notre Dame to his death. Quasimodo, so he murders him. Quasimodo then heads for the gibbet of Montfaucon, beyond the city walls, passing by the convent of Fildieu, a home for 200 reformed prostitutes, and the leper colony of Saint Lazare. After reaching the gibbet, he lies next to Esmeralda's corpse, where it has been unceremoniously thrown after the execution. He stays at Montfaucon, and eventually dies of starvation. And now there's a twist ending. About 18 months later, the tomb is opened and the skeletons are found. As someone tries to separate them, Quasimodo's bones turn to dust. And that's it. Now, if you're a major Victor Hugo fan, and uh, especially a fan of gothic novels, uh, especially if you prefer the book to the film, go easy on it, but I would like to know. Tweet me, uh, at School of Movies, why the book appeals to you, and let me know your take home from the book. What? What? To, it seems so grim. What? What can we learn from it? What do we? What do we get from that story? Uh, that I would like to know. So I'll retweet you if you let me know. I wonder if, to a different culture in a different time, an ending like that with that sort of tragedy leaves the reader with a very different feeling and impression and lesson learned at the end like it which what to us may seem as a very like wow nothing happened no like no lesson was learned what am i supposed to come out of this feeling perhaps a different culture in a different time would come out of that with some impression or it may just be that storytelling has come a long way in all the centuries we have we have been doing it 
I really don't know. I'm trying to give it the benefit of the doubt. I will say, I, I think you're right about the storytelling, Dan. Um, I think the the process of telling a story is the same universally and uh, throughout time. However, the type of stories that you want to tell and the type of audience who wants to hear them is in constant flux. So I think that's the element of it that that it has evolved. I don't agree that the delivery method is significant. I think that, you know, it would be perfectly possible to make a a film, even an animated film, that had the, the same original ending. And it would probably evoke a similar sort of um, emptiness as that ending does in a in a, a literary context. I've I don't think the recently. medium well indeed, I don't think the medium is really the point. Um, but I do think that if you're going to look at why would well, they no, change the something like that? The medium is important for me because it takes hours and hours and hours for me to read through a book and it takes physical effort to make my eyes move, to but make my brain I'm... assimilate it. Whereas at least with a film, I can sit passively, watch it and then go, that was terrible, but sure. at least it was only two hours long. But what I'm saying is, had they had film at that particular point in history and been able to present that filmically, I'm sure that, that it would still have been the same story that Hugo wanted to tell. Um, oh, for sure, yeah. I don't think that it being a book and, and that being converted to film is necessarily as impactful on the changes as the fact that it was a book written for adults and they've made it into a story for children. They've used elements of that and given it such a different perspective and such a wonderful outlook and such a um, a marvellous way of presenting it. Here is how people treat each other. Um rather than looking at it in terms of here is how people really treat each other. Isn't that horrible? Well, I mean, he hang on. He, Victor Hugo himself uh, uh, earned widespread respect as a campaigner for social causes such as the abolition of the death penalty. So technically, uh, when we hear Esmeralda screaming for justice, that's his voice coming through. It's just that the message being conveyed is one of which ends in hope as opposed to despair and Hugo pointing to it with an enormous sponge finger going, look what happens with the death penalty. You destroy everything. This is what happens. Well, that's, it's very similar to what Dickens was doing, if you think about it. That and the, then Tiny the, Tim... No, no, because at the end of The Christmas Carol and Tiny Tim, who did not die... That's The Christmas Carol, though, but there was a lot of Dickens and a lot of characters yep. in Dickens who do not end well. I do not read Bleak House either. Yeah. Too bleak. <laughs> exactly. But but my point is that the people who were trying to get those messages across in that time, it was about bringing the horror of the reality to the eyes of the people who could actually do something about it. And the medium in which you reached those people was through literature. I suppose I... They, they were basically assuming in the day... I've got to stab at their hearts and leave them haunted by this and walking around mourning the death of these characters. Exactly. So yeah. that they, when the next time they are called upon to make a decision, that will come back to them. Yeah. Having, but you, surely you can do that by inspiring hope as well. Maybe at that time, no, you couldn't. Yeah, I guess I wonder it depends what it on the group. Go, you go first, sorry. Okay. I wonder what a Disney movie of Uncle Tom's Cabin would be like. Um... Closest would be Songs of the South. Uh, I guess so. <laughs> that's that's sad because you know Uncle Tom's Cabin does the same thing. It, it examines a problem in the culture and then suitably kills everybody. Yeah, I guess oh. it depends very much on the people the that that 
story is intended for and kind of the time and place culture wise that 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 those people are at because for some people having being told a tragic tale and having the plight of a group of people revealed to you that then ends happily in a certain way almost kind of mentally lets you off the hook in a way like you you at least end with a good feeling and you can kind of and for some people that may kind of allow you to sort of forget the sadness you felt whereas for others something that ends tragically it will stick with you and you will start you maybe if you're someone who did not see that tragedy that other people were experiencing before maybe because you felt it and it resonated so deeply you might start seeing it put it in that context i can see what he was attempting to do he was hammering at the gentry of paris yeah, it feels like a hammer to you because you have the mindset that sees um, that compassion is is a, a better way to be and that, you know, caring about people and not hanging them off the nearest yardarm is really a, a more... The Navy um, doesn't hang people from yardarms anymore. <laughs> Starring um, Demi Moore. <laughs> it's a way that, that people might possibly prefer to live. So so that's the thing. In your context, because of the, um, the experiences that you have and the, the time and place that you live in, that inspiring kind of tale that uplifts you at the end is what drives you it's not what drives me it's what keeps me alive if i didn't have a steady injection of hope i'd just lie down and die as would everybody yeah so that's why i don't get it i don't get why back in those days people didn't just lie down and die because it seemed like living was a horrible situation to be in I think a lot of them did. TB. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to point out there were the same thing. Plenty other people scrabbling for life. No wonder again, this film this turned is, out dark. Is, well, indeed. But again, this is what art is. It's seeking meaning to what have now become in this day and age. We have very, very lengthy lives, and for the most part, in the uh, the context of the people who have relatively secure environments and relatively healthy existences it's not just about keeping yourself physically alive from one day to the next it's about you know we're working our way up maslow's hierarchy of needs I'm also very proud of how Disney have progressed because if you think of it, you can't do this about the fox and hound. After only less than, or just over a decade, they'd gone from just doing animal films with dogs and cats to doing something with serious social commentary in it. I mean, this one specifically, it wasn't so much about the social situation in Paris at that time. Though there's absolutely a thread of racism and classism running through it. It's actually about psychologically abusive relationships confront that in a way that shows that Quasi is able to actually see the right thing to do through everything that he's had he's had heaped upon him. This is what I said earlier. Uh, Esmeralda ultimately uh, comes from a place where she is free enough to be able to seek out justice. She's not shackled in the same way that uh, Phoebus is and uh, by all of the many invisible shackles that hold down Frollo. Uh, so she is free to be this bohemian fighting for freedom, beauty, and I say beauty in terms of the fact that she can actually see beauty in things beyond the superficially beautiful truth and love. Uh, so this is, again, kind of like um, it, it, it ties in with uh, 
I suppose, les miserables as well for, for the best things that, um, that the young and the passionate fight for. I can't believe this movie exists. Yeah. Like, kudos to the creative team for fighting as hard as they must have to get this made as it was. And, and I know they they had to make some compromises here and there. I think they intentionally were pressured to make Frollo not a religious leader, make him a judge separate from the church so that the church can also sort of be a force opposing him in a way. But the the artist still kind of in a little bit of a rebellion still designed him to look like a religious leader, even though he is not. Yeah. Also, his uh, negative motivations quite clearly come from his perception of the church, even if it's not from the church itself. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. He really is praying to uh, Maria at that point. It's uh, He's not just going, I don't believe in any of this stuff. In the way that Radcliffe doesn't really believe in anything. Religion is very much one of his key tools in what he tries to do, both in the uh, both in the will he tries to exert over the city and in the pious self-image that he has created for himself. Yeah, and his understanding of it is so wrong. Like, uh, just like Pocahontas, uh, with me being Native American. I'm also Catholic, so it's it's interesting to to see that stuff come out in this movie. The way the church teaches dealing with with groups that are different from our own uh, beliefs and, and and rules, I suppose, is that you condemn the 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 belief, the act itself. You know, don't you know act the way these people are acting, but remember to love the the people that are, are doing these things because they, they, they could have any number of reason. You have no idea where they're coming from. And it is our job not to condemn people. <laughs> like that is the biggest thing that we should not do. It's just tragic for Frollo to be so, so wrong in his understanding of what he's living for. Yeah. I'm astounded at how well they portray and not only how, something like religion can be so can be practically corrupted into to very evil ends but the psychology of the kind of person who would do that not even necessarily with that intent i'm going to use this thing and you as a tool but a person who very deeply clearly believes in it and uh, there's so much complexity to frollo as he has portrayed which is why David Ogden's uh, Skyers, Steers, what is it? Um, I, think it's, I think it's technically Steers. I've been saying Steers this entire yeah. series. You just um, say David Ogden. <laughs> it's great that he's he and his character are there to like show what Frollo is trying, well, not even trying to be, but what he should be and how he should be behaving. Because, you know, this archdeacon isn't, doesn't hate anybody and he's very welcoming to esmeralda and he, it's he's very much the true representation of what frollo is meaning to be and he seems very powerless compared to frollo as well like he's a person who's an official who like he you he clearly you can tell watching him that if he could be out there creating the change that esmeralda tries to publicly and he thinks that he could do that then he would be but it seems like basically outside the walls of Notre Dame, Frollo runs everything, and he knows he 
really can't change much out there. I think the f- the fear in his character comes across because um, of the the comment that he makes to Esmeralda about you can't um, you can't save everybody all by yourself, but you can try, and she would try. Yeah, that's another another reason why I really love her character. Yeah, he's he's the kind of person who has great compassion for his fellow man and very much wants to be able to help people. And he stays within the nice safe walls of his big cathedral where he's got, you know, the protection of the of the uh, the church and they can't really get to him. They can stop him from leaving to help other people, but they can't really get to him. And that's the very limited sphere of his influence which you could interpret as being this is the extent to which positive religion can help it can help people who come into the church doesn't do a lot of good for the people who are stuck outside it should be pointed out though that he saves quasimodo's life as as when he was a baby he, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, be, and, uh, and part of that is because Frollo himself is so uh, in fear of God that true. the the archdeacon's command is law to him. He wouldn't have dreamed at that point of saying, "No, well, but that'll come twenty years later." Yeah. <laughs> well, indeed. when you I get throw the... you off of the stairs, yeah, you get the sense looking at Frollo and the archdeacon that that door frame of Notre Dame is a fiercely contested border that they have fought over many times Mm. before going outside to save Quasimodo is him venturing out kind of beyond a safe space because I suspect that if he outside of the church stepped out of line Frollo he knows Frollo would probably find a way to imprison him or to get get himself inside maybe Maybe not not at at that that point point, but later later. yeah but definitely later on and as long as he is even though his influence outside Notre Dame is very limited as long as he stays in the church. As long as he is in there, he can still protect the people who come in. Because Frollo is obviously not going to stop at the door if the archdeacon isn't there to apply the check saying, you cannot come in here, and you know it. And the people watching you know it. That idea of um, this cathedral that represents I mean, the, the very words Notre Dame mean Our Lady, Our Mother, Our, you know, this um, the statue of Mary is the last one that Frollo sees looking at him condemningly um, when he's about to take that action. And uh, one of the, th- I mean, I am I'm not a uh, religious person. I'm not Christian. I wasn't raised in that faith. But there's a particular cathedral in Wakefield where they have a chapel to Mary with a marble statue of just it's very, very simple. And it's basically just a woman holding a baby. But that chapel has moved me more than almost any other religious iconography that I've come into contact with. And that feeling of just protectiveness and power coming from a place of compassion and a place of um, caring and looking after that the church is supposed to be that as you say Narmate, all that is good about religion is supposed to come forward in that and that contradiction with Frollo's behaviour and seeing how twisted and corrupted he's made it because that comes from him it's again we, we don't we know that there must have been something in his past that's made him see it that way, but we don't see what that thing actually was. So the book stops with him in this film. 
That's true. And having to, in fact, having to compromise that little bit of the story of making Frollo have to be kind of a removed third party uh, secular judge apart from the church actually does help to provide the contrast that may not be there if he was just, if the church was basically just his domain. So actually thinking back on that change they had to make, I actually kind of like it. Mm. Part of that also may be a time shift thing because what they needed, the most important thing about him that they needed to show was that he had real power over people's life and death in the city. And it's possible that in a modern context, the idea of a religious leader having that power wouldn't be quite so understandable. Production troubles. Due to the heavy subject matter, there were many issues that proved contentious between the creative team and the studio. One of the main ones revolved around the profession and motivation of Claude Frollo, the villain. In Victor Hugo's original text, Frollo was a church official, archdeacon of the Notre Dame Cathedral, so he took the role that David Ogden Steers ended up with. In the film version, he was turned into a judge, a secular government official whose preoccupation with the gypsy lay in his view of them as agents of moral decay as opposed to deviants of the church. The Gospel According to Disney said, Disney executives would have no part in Hugo's intent to criticize the church and its leaders for their failure to defend the poor and the powerless, and it was too controversial. However, in an effort to be as faithful to the text as possible, the animators did their best to subvert this order from above by using Frollo's visual design to show he was a priest. Entertainment Weekly, which gave, gave the film an A in their review, noted when it was announced that Disney would produce an animated musical version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, there were doubts, even jokes, about transforming Victor Hugo's classic tale with its famously misshapen hero into a crowd-pleaser for kids. So, in actuality, it's more impressive that the fact that they were actually told straight out you can't make this guy a priest. We are not touching that one with a 10-foot pole. And the way he's dressed, uh, just the fact that he's wearing an enormous black frock, uh, it, it gives the visual cues to suggest he has extremely close ties to the church. So that's still conveyed. Yeah, it still communicates what it needs to without coming right out and saying it. Yeah. But ultimately, it's not actually massively important that he's a priest. When it comes down to it, um, yes, the original book, it, it was a critique on the, the church itself. But ultimately, that can be conveyed to any number of heartless, sociopathic authority figures. Anybody who's able to turn a blind eye to other people's suffering, especially if you're living in disgusting opulence... That needs to be conveyed throughout history to make people more wary of that occurring in real life. It's occurring right now as we speak. You make a fine point. I do want to point out that the, the church may lose its power uh, as, the, as the years and decades go on, but it, there is something to be said for the fact that it outlasted Rome and a lot of other things. Uh, it's it's still around, which is amazing for for a religion that started so so quietly. Maybe you've heard of that mythical place called the Cordoba. 
shot on the black humor there we seem to have forgotten again again the uh, the, the technical beauty of, of the film itself or, or we haven't mentioned it for a long time uh, it really struck me when esmeralda goes into the bell tower and um cause showing how the various bells the sunlight the shafts of it shining through is absolutely gorgeous and uh, like i said if you just go back a few years to beauty and the beast and uh, um the, the, you know, the little mermaid it's they've come on so far since then it's such a quantum leap. Their ability to convey things in more and more complexity. Yeah, absolutely. There's the more and more little tricks they learn, more and more ways that either technology or just uh, better developed methods allow them to just create these beautiful images. And I'm sure, to an extent, the uh, amount of manpower and budget they have going at every film now is a significant help. But, uh, but yeah, th- at this point... Disney animation is at its peak. Like 2D traditional animation does not get much better than this. And that's not a bad that's thing. True. They basically yeah. like from here, it, the quality may start to dip as 2D traditional starts to go and fade into 3D as their budgets dwindle and everything else. But this is as good as Disney has ever, ever looked. The fact that this is not an absolutely beloved film baffles me a little because uh, it's, it could simply be its unconventional hero. Maybe just the, the fact that Quasi is ugly as hell and um, and deformed and um, childlike in his behavior, but not necessarily funny in and of himself. It, it doesn't sit and conform to, to the various requirements for a lot of people for what, what they want in their um, animated story. Technically, neither does Pocahontas. That's true. And I think that may be a reason why both of them did not perform nearly so well as the films that came before well or not nearly so well as the lion king mm. crazy high they had hit and it's, it's somewhat in pocahontas's case and definitely in this one as well the more adult skewing themes while it makes them and particularly hunchback an incredible film to go back and watch now as an adult i could see it being less appealing to that huge family demographic that disney usually targets yeah and so many of them kind of deciding to skip it or go for a different one entirely. Well, it so certainly doesn't make it any worse a film, but for lose, but for losing that kind of just going a little bit outside of that core demographic of theirs, it may, that may just be one of the main reasons it doesn't quite enjoy the popularity as much as it should. That word of mouth would have spread that it was a little dark and inappropriate with um, you know threats of public hanging and all yeah. kinds of um, grim stuff, which they just would have avoided. There are certain things that uh, that a lot of parents will turn away from and um 
Public executions as well. <laughs> I think a big part of that, though, is the uh, the feeling that a Disney movie some, should be something that you can just stick your kids on in front of and walk away. Now, I don't agree with that at all. Um, but I think there is, for, for a lot of parents, that's what films are for their kids. They are safe. They have no corners. Um, you, you don't have to worry about the fact that while you're trying to get on with the housework or whatever it is that you need to do, you're going to be constantly called back into the living room to explain this or that, or the kid got scared because this happened and there was nobody there to put it into context for them. Also, for, I was talking about it not being that massive a success. It was still the fifth most uh, uh, highest grossing film of uh, 1996 uh, after Independence Day at number one, Twister, Mission Impossible, The Rock, and then Hunchback. So basically four blockbusters and then Hunchback. However, Toy Story, which made 50 million more the year before, was number one of 1995, outranking Die Hard with a Vengeance, Apollo 13, GoldenEye, and Pocahontas. It, there is that general public expectation that Disney is is always going to have a certain amount of safety for for to leave the kid in front of. It's Disney is not Studio Ghibli. Like even a light Ghibli movie still has some pretty heavy themes in there. Yeah, and the and the heavy ones are not to leave a kid in front of. Probably, I just realized what came out a week after this: the Nutty Professor. <laughs> It didn't take that much of its box office. It only made 273, but still, with that out the next week, I think a lot of people would have gone to go and see the fat suit comedy. So, instead. Yeah. And, and then Striptease, the one we mentioned before. So, that's going to like confuse parents. They're like, hang on, do we go see Demi Moore play a Disney cartoon female heroine, or do we go next door and watch her take her clothes off? <laughs> God, imagine. The tough seller is convincing adults who don't have children to go see Disney films, especially during this decade. People who didn't grow up with Disney being wonderful. People who grew up with Disney in the 80s and just like had gotten used to Disney being kind of past it. It's a bit easier for us now because uh, animated films from various different studios are now absolutely massive, big, uh, you know, blockbusters. And uh, um, not only do they attract massive families, but a lot of, uh, you know, adults tend to, uh, you know, if we didn't have Lyra, we'd still have gone off to see um, How to Train Your Dragon 2. But back in this day, that's why, you know, the Michael Bay film still did better than it. While we do get the distractions of uh, Esmeralda and Phoebus uh, throughout the movie, and we, we seem to be sort of moving off in that direction, and like we're going to sort of, um, they're going to be the new heroes, it still does go back to Quasi repeatedly. They've got um, the, the song A Guy Like y- You happens, and we mentioned this earlier, ju- during the time when Paris is on fire, and uh, contains the worst pun in the entire world. Can anyone remember which one it was? It's not really a pun, but it's just it's it's, it's wordplay. It's they all have glanced at some Adonis, but since you're shaped like a croissant is, mm. ouch. That's a reach. <laughs> 
But um, yeah, no. So you get that, and they're, they're, they're lifting up his spirits, and uh, you know, even if it, they are figments of his imagination, trying to keep him buoyant again, um, it, it succeeds, and he actually is given a little bit of hope. And then that's snatched away when Phoebus is uh, brought in and uh, starts locking lips with Esmeralda. And there's that heartbreaking, literally, m- moment when he tears up the little playing card and walks off. And again, this is the test of uh, his uh, his true character because he has been effectively abandoned, rejected again and everything he wanted to have. He's, he's accepted he won't be able to go out anymore, but maybe Esmeralda might stick around and now he doesn't have that. So, And yet he doesn't get uh, embroiled in self-pity and um, and bitterness. He actually manages to you know, continue doing the right thing. And um, so ultimately that's sending out absolutely the right message which is the test of oneself comes when you're um, at your lowest I think part of that as well though is that he doesn't It. I mean he. there's that moment that he does conflate the idea of not getting the thing that he dreamed about being equivalent to abandonment and rejection but they're not she still loves him, she still cares about him a great deal um, and he's able to I think still see that and still um, uh, have that as, as, like I said before, a valuable thing in and of itself, which is relatively rarely explored in a context where a romantic yearning has been present. There's been friendships in in Disney films, obviously, um, but to have the idea that a relationship can go from one to the other, uh, even if it's in your own only in your own head, is quite a significant one and again as with Pocahontas it makes uh, Quasimodo seem older he's not a child he's he's a um, a teenager or a young man coming face to face with and dealing with with aplomb the uh, complexities of negotiating human relationships it's my favorite shot of the movie when he's just standing there defeated mm. and they're they're making out <laughs> It's my uh, yeah. I really like that shot. I'd say that's a very relatable shot as well. Also, I think the lack of competitiveness between him and Phoebus is significant to that. They yeah. they aren't rivals. They are friends. Ultimately, they do squabble not, at times, but it's, yeah, they yeah. do. But it's it's not about Phoebus wins. He doesn't get the girl because he's better. He gets the girl because Esmeralda happens to love him for who he is. Yeah. They have great chemistry together there. Um, when they're fighting over the map thing that Esmeralda gave Quasimodo, mm-hmm. they they go on two different tracks of dialogue. And every time I try to listen to Phoebus, but Quasi is so much louder. <laughs> Maybe it's ancient Greek. When you wear this woven band, you hold the city in your hand. What? It's the city. What are you talking about? It's a map. See? Here's the cathedral and the river and, and, and this little I've stone. I've never seen a map that looks look, like... I've lived look, up in the I've bell tower for 20 years, and I think I know what the city looks like from a map. And like this, this is, is not it. it. Because they couldn't just show outright town riots and chaos, they had to make it kind of a fun riot. So there's a bunch of comedy moments and it's much like the uh, the big fight at the end of Beauty and the Beast and it disengages you a little bit so it's almost like they're, they're veering up and down you've got characters you really care about in very real danger and you've got characters you don't care about goofing off and doing clown stuff that's probably the most mis- 
uh, mismanaged or unbalanced moments in the, the film. Also, the amount of, is it boiling oil or molten gold that pours out of Notre Dame? There's a lot of it. <laughs> They developed for the crowd scenes something was actually not dissimilar to uh, Weta's Massive uh, in terms of creating CG characters that would perform basic functions so that they could fill a square with them without having to animate them individually. So they'd, they'd chop and change their uh, uh, clothes and uh, get them to randomize their masks so that you could have big crowd scenes. And I wish I hadn't found out about that because I was looking in the background for a couple of the, the shots during the uh, the crowd scenes, and you can really see them if you know what to look for. Yeah, um, it's astounding how well it does not, how much it does not show until yeah. you know to look for it. Like I've never noticed before, but they uh, really are. Yeah, and I'm usually pretty sensitive to an animation like weakness or problem, but I had not. It did not even register to me until I found out that they had. Yeah, I mean, and it's not like a full massive level, like where there's an AI controller choosing what they're doing or anything like that. Yeah. They're basically they just they full are doing kind of applying the stampede tech to yeah. humans, which is still a very big leap for them to be making at that point with 3D, to where they're making a bunch of 3D crowd people and just kind of creating a bunch of different sort of cycles of crowd animation, cheering and stuff, and then just copy pasting a bunch of those all over in the background. And unless you actually look, and then it looks really ropey. It it works quite well, just as a big, noisy, clustery crowd. And they still manage to pull your attention to the foreground and the yeah. actual 2D animated characters at all times. And yeah, they've got regular villagers in there who are animated in much the same way as the uh, villagers in Beauty and the Beast. Uh, yeah, so. yeah. So it's, it's, I suppose it's kind of like um, in... Uh, if you if you watch a battle scene in a big live action film, especially from uh, a long time ago, before they put CG people in there, you've got your people in your, the best armor at the front, smashing swords and like uh, properly doing coordinated fighting, and in the middle you've got people in the slightly not quite as good armor, but it's still you know it's made of metal and it looks just about right, and they're doing slightly less coordinated stuff, and then there's people in the far far background who've got like just just bits of wood strapped to them and they're waving around wooden sticks. Yeah, <laughs> silver. And they're waving around wooden sticks and not actually fighting at all. And the modern day equivalent of that is the uh, the the CG versions of them. So these were this were all footsteps towards uh, becoming uh, producing a fully CG film uh, on Disney's part. I think it took them a while, didn't it? Cuz dinosaur doesn't count because all of the backgrounds were uh, real locations, weren't they? Uh, that's only five movies away. Yep, we got to do it. Um, I think was it Chicken Little was the first. Uh, yep, that's CG the first one. Oy, what I want to start on. But yeah, so they they had computer assisted moments, or you know, reaching up all the way from uh, from rescuers forwards. Sorry, rescuers down under forwards, and. Um, Ultimately, the best uses of them are the ones where you don't even notice, like this, where you're uh, you're focusing so much on the sumptuous things in the middle that the stuff around the edges just doesn't catch the eye. Definitely. It's allowing you to do something you couldn't do otherwise, but it's not calling attention to the fact that you're doing it. And I suppose it's it's um, only marginally uh, important in to, to the grander scheme of things. But all that confetti and all of the uh, blowing leaves in Pocahontas and they were started in uh, The Lion King. That all had to be carefully orchestrated as well. They couldn't just hand animate every single piece of confetti, surely. I would assume not. That's a lot of confetti. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that was tech assisted as well in this case. But yeah, a lot of effects work. There's one detail that I want to point out before we <laughs> close up. Um, when Quasi, at the end of the movie, he's coming out of Notre Dame, mm. and um, he sees the sun. His 
pupils dilate. I never noticed that, but yeah. my sister pointed it out, and I'm like, wow! And they do it really fast, so goodness, that was, that's a huge attention to detail. Yeah, it's less than eight frames, but yeah, very important detail that you feel rather than see. Mm-hmm. It's a, a lovely shot as well, because if, if you remember, uh, Esmeralda comes in and reaches out a hand to us, the audience, putting us in Quasi's shoes as he steps out of the door. And it's a very tender, very uh, quiet moment, rather than just immediately. Like, they could just have thrown him out there and had him on everyone's shoulders, but there's that, that moment of uncertainty, which so he, he kind of like, he had to earn this. Not even earn it, but he had to... He had to take a risk yeah. to get it. He had to um, he had to show one more time that his faith in people not to hurt him was still there in yeah. some measure. We haven't mentioned that, the way that he was horribly humiliated when he actually did the first time. It's uh, you, you mentioned that he went, it went all carry, and it really you know had he had the power to lash out, he may have done at that stage. He, it was just utter painful traumatic humiliation it's just it's everything he's dreamed that uh, could come true to him then turns into a horrible nightmare but he is rewarded for taking that step one more time yeah and then we are rewarded with another huge crescendo of that bells of notre dame yeah. theme yeah <laughs> to finish it out so here is a riddle to guess if you can sing the bells of notre dame what makes a monster and what makes a man? Whatever that pitch, you can feel them bewitch you, the rich and the ritual bells of the bells of the This is an excerpt from the book, The Story of French. Victor Hugo began experimenting with a new approach to prose based on telling the story of less than ideal characters, a poor bohemian girl, a deformed bell ringer, and a lecherous archdeacon, the three pillars of the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Few fans of the novel, which has inspired several successful films, know that Hugo wrote it to save the famous Gothic Cathedral of Notre Dame from demolition. During the Revolution, Notre Dame had been used as a saltpetre plant. By the 19th century, it had suffered so much neglect that builders wanted to reuse its stones for bridge construction. Gothic art was then regarded as ugly and offensive, so Hugo's choice of the location was deliberate. It linked the grotesque characters with the ugly art. The first three chapters of the novel are a plea to preserve Gothic architecture. In Hugo's words, a gigantic book of stone, which he, as a romantic, found beautiful. And a huge, huge thank you to our special patrons this month. They include Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, 
Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Christopher Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisham. And all of you guys who continue to be our patrons, thank you very, very much. You keep this show going. Well, I hope that this has helped uh, listeners um, reevaluate the film, and uh, I, I reckon a lot of people are going to go back and go, you know what, I've only ever seen this film once, didn't think that much of it, now I love it. Which is the best that we can really do. Or there'll be people who've never seen it ever. So thank you very much to our co-presenter for the Disney series, Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits. Thank you. And to our guest, Name Chaibeti of the Digital Drift community. Thank you for the opportunity. You're very welcome. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Neural... Did... What were you going to say? I, I don't know. Digital don't handshake know. complete. All <laughs> handshakes are digital. I'm tired. <laughs> okay, right. Next week, Hercules. And Neural Handshake... you got to say words with me. <laughs> Sorry. This is the worst handshake ever. <laughs> This is like you, you, you send out your hand and then they slap a fish in there. Gypsy Danger's about to blow up the hangar. <laughs> <laughs> I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. Come one, come all.
here's your chance. See the mystery and romance. Come one, come all. See the finest girl in France. Make an entrance to entrance. Dance La Esmeralda. Yeah. 